In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom, and I'm Nathan Sela. Today we have mm, another doozy. <laughs> <laughs> we are coming back from our uh, holiday break, swinging yes. in the new year and the new season of the Perspectrum. Season what three, two, something like that. Yeah. And yeah, so we're going to be talking about. Uh, one of our favorite topics from good old days of 2021, uh, the Build Back Better plan and how that is a failure. Uh, and then we'll be talking about, you know, another one of our new introductions from 2021. Um, sorry, we fucked up your country with an installment focused on Afghanistan. Yes, we fucked up Afghanistan even more than we've already talked about how much we fucked up Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, and then for our last segment, we'll be having a little bit more of a theoretical discussion about whether Democrats should gerrymander, even though Democrats are, you know, at least nominally against gerrymandering. Hmm. Oh, I wonder what fun. position Nathan's going <laughs> to take on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll have to wait and find out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I'm pretty sure I had COVID over the, over the break. That sucks yeah uh you you might notice that my voice is a little bit uh hoarse today mm. that's because i'm still kind of recovering I, and the reason why i'm saying i think i might have had covid is because i couldn't get a fucking test yeah we're like three years into the pandemic and yeah. it's almost impossible to get a test like all pharmacies all of the nearest 25 pharmacies to me mm -hmm. were completely booked and yeah. by the time I finally got a test, I was pretty much completely covered and it ended up being negative. But who knows how reliable that was because it was days after the worst of the symptoms. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I might have had COVID over the yeah. over the break. That's pretty crazy. And it seems like everybody I know, no matter how cautious, has had at least a COVID scare. Yeah. If not actually gotten COVID like this new variant, as we'll talk about in the first few minutes of the episode is a fucking doozy yeah speaking of covid uh -huh. let's talk about the covid numbers bam let's easiest transition ever <laughs> so so far in the world we've hit 298 million cases which is up from 285 million seven days ago that's 13 million new cases in a week 1.85 million new cases per day that is the highest rate of daily new cases ever by a factor of almost two. Twice as many new cases as ever during the pandemic over the past week. And just, just to point out really quickly, I probably had COVID, but, I didn't, but I'm not counted in that because I yeah. wasn't able to get a fucking test, so mine was not an official case. Mm -hmm. So the actual number is likely way larger than that. Yeah. 
It's crazy. Now, to be fair, in terms of death, we've hit 5.48 million, which is up from 5.44 million a week ago, which is 40,000 new deaths. So 5.71 thousand per day, which is pretty much right where we were in 2020, which is actually down from where we were throughout a lot of 2021. So even though our cases have spiked, our deaths haven't yet. Now, it's possible that that is due to some um, reduction in the severity of COVID with the new Omicron variant, which, you know, there's some reporting that seems to indicate that that's true. But at the same time, one pattern that we've noticed throughout the pandemic is a spike in cases usually takes a couple of weeks to lead to a spike in deaths. Yeah. So a doubling or more of the number of daily new cases probably won't show up in deaths for another week or two if, yeah. it, if it ends up doing that. And if it doesn't, it could also be that it does appear that Omicron is more likely to infect people that are vaccinated. Mm-hmm. But like it still ends up being less severe if among people that are that are vaccinated. So it could be that a larger number of people who are vaccinated are getting the disease, but because they're vaccinated, they're not dying. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it seems like this is a, just a very different variant. And yeah. a lot of the assumptions and heuristics that we kind of built into our behavior are kind of going out the window, which sucks because it means that the new normal that we kind of reached in 2021 is no longer really reliable. Yeah. So we're kind of having to rewrite the rule book a little bit. Um, Again. But hopefully that ends up being that Omicron is less severe for the unvaccinated and the vaccinated, and ultimately the rules can be relaxed as we learn more about it. But that's just hypothetical at this point. In the U.S., the story is pretty similar. So we've hit 58.4 million cases, which is up from 54.7 million the week before. So that's 3.7 million new cases in a week, or 538,000 new cases per day. Again, the highest it's ever been. In terms of death, we've hit 853,000, which is up from 843,000 last week. So that's 10,000 new deaths in a week, or about 1,400 deaths per day. Not the highest it's been, I think it topped out at over 2,000, but also, you know, not the lowest it's been either. Um, In terms of vaccinations, worldwide, we're at like 60% of the world that has received one dose. In the U.S., 74% have received one dose, with 62% having received two doses and 22% having received three doses of the vaccines. Real quick, Um, is that that population or is that eligible adults? population nice yeah it's pretty exciting i mean it it would be even more exciting if not for the omicron variant yeah (laughs) because it has reduced like the vaccine's effectiveness for you know preventing hospitalization so you know previously a two dose two doses were like 95 percent or something like that effective at preventing hospitalization um with omicron it's about 72 percent effective but if you get a booster that goes back up to around 88 percent or so so that you know we really need to now now that we've hit like 74 percent in the u.s with one dose 62 percent with two doses we really need to start focusing on that 22 percent with three doses because that's going to bring the vaccine effectiveness back up to closer where it were to where it was um 
you know, before this newest variant. Shit's crazy, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I feel like uh I feel like we took a break and you know, the hope was things would be different when we got back. Maybe yeah. we could have some segments that were good. Yeah. <laughs> that weren't just talking about <laughs> here's a horrible problem, here's a horrible problem, here's a horrible no. problem. No, no, no. Uh but but no, that's not what we're we doing. thought. We thought with with Biden in office, everything would be we not everything would be good, but things would be better. And they were. But better. horrible things continue. Well, know. well, I mean, it's it's one of the things that I was saying over the uh, when 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 we, were, when we were in the primary, which is that yes, a Joe Biden victory would take us back to a time at least similar to how things were before Trump. Mm-hmm. And yes, that's better than how things were with Trump, but it was also fucking terrible. <laughs> it yeah. led to Trump. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so and, and, and that seems to be exactly what's happening. And that's what we've seen so far with the failure of Build Back Better. So, Michael... <laughs> <laughs> We should, uh, yes, we should Nathan? just, uh, we should, I think we should rename our, our, uh, podcast to the curse of Cassandra <laughs> because why we fucking called it. <laughs> we, we, got, we have to stop being so good at predicting called the it. We keep predicting terrible futures that all <laughs> come to pass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, so we're Bruno. We're yep. Bruno from Encanto. <laughs> <laughs> don't talk about us. Really don't talk about us because you're going to get that fucking song stuck in my head again. <laughs> I thank goodness have not seen that. Um, oh, it's a great so. movie. You should definitely watch it. But yeah, you yeah. thought Toss a Coin to Your Witcher got stuck in your head. Damn it, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. You, you watch this. You'll get another song stuck in your head. No, thanks. So um, as <laughs> of January 4th, Joe Manchin, our favorite Republican in Democrats clothing um, has said that he is no longer in talks with Democrats about the big build back better plan. His previous position is that he will not support the watered down like fully conceded $1.75 trillion form of the bill. And so it is, I think nail in the coffin fucking dead the compromise of the compromise of the compromise of the compromise yep the one that he said if we cut the 3.5 in half then i'll vote for it we cut it in half and he was like (laughs) he's citing two things inflation which we've already talked about on the show is a distracting rationale it is not a good rationale for opposing this plan it is not obvious that this plan will lead to inflation $1.75 $1.75 trillion doesn't all go out this year. Inflation right now is a temporary issue caused by a bunch of aspects of our economy. And investing in the future of the United States in our social infrastructure will not drive it. And also, if again, if the logic is that increase the deficit, increase inflation, which it's not that simple. The biggest thing that's nope. causing inflation right now is supply chains. But if that is the logic, then why the fuck did you vote to increase the military budget again? 
Yep. He's Which a leads fucking us to hypocrite. His second point is that it still costs too much. <laughs> so, so okay, before we say that Joe Manchin is a total fucking like liar, hypocrite, uh, shitbag. Yeah. He's saying that it costs too much even though it's nominally 1.75 trillion because he thinks the actual price tag will be much higher because in this bill certain programs like the expanded child tax credit sunset sunset after 1 year, right? So, he's saying that those programs will actually go for 10 years and so when we look at the 10-year cost of the bill, um it will be higher. Two problems with that. One, as we've talked about before, that's not how we talk about uh, defense spending, even though that's going to be renewed every single year. Yeah. And two, the second problem is that the only reason that that would be true is if those programs are very popular, if they work, if they make people's lives better. So basically what he's saying is, I don't want to sign up for having to fund these programs because they will be too good. People will want to renew them. Yeah. Like, if they're so good that people want to renew them, we'll find ways to pay for it. Yeah. We could cut military. We, <laughs> we could cut just a little. Yeah. Like, a little bit. We could cut the military <laughs> budget in half and still spend more than the next country by far. More than yeah. China by far. We could and that cut would it fund, in half. That would fund the whole bill back better. The whole bill. And then some. Yeah. Plenty. Yeah. But no, you're, you're not going to do that because you are paid, you're bought and paid for by military contractors. You oppose mm. this bill because you are bought and paid for by the fossil fuel industry. You're a fucking investor in the fossil fuel industry. Yep. But you know what? You know what? It's not all bad. He has said that he would be willing to talk about parts of the bill stripped out as independent bills. Oh, wait. That's another totally empty gesture because this bill had to be passed under budget reconciliation because he opposes filibuster reform. Yeah. So if you strip out all the sections of the bill, you can't pass them all under budget reconciliation, and so they're all dead on arrival. Yeah. He is so fucking corrupt. Maggots are crawling out of his nose. <laughs> so we should not elide over how effectively we predicted that this would happen. Yeah. So, so we fucking said, first off, when they announced the bifurcated strategy in the first place, when they first said our strategy is that we're going to put in the, we're going to, we're going to put in the, traditional infrastructure bill and this human infrastructure bill as two separate bills and pass them separately. But simultaneously. But simultaneously. When they first came up with that strategy, I was skeptical. Remember, I said, like, the the, the, the name of that episode was, that's a bold strategy, Biden. <laughs> because I was skeptical of that. Because think about it. The only reason why you would separate the bills is if you believe that one of them is essential and one of them is not. That's the only mm-hmm. reason why you do it. Yeah. All right. But their argument was no. Well, 
we'll pass the we'll pass the traditional infrastructure bill because that'll be bipartisan and we can just do that through traditional infrastructure or th through the uh, the regular order in in uh, in the Senate and then we'll use that as leverage against moderate democrats in order to get them to vote for the uh, the the build back better plan that was what Nancy Pelosi said that was Nancy mm -hmm. Pelosi's strategy and once that became the strategy Michael and I were like all right fine this is what we're doing let's give it a try and Nancy Pelosi for a little bit was like yeah i will not schedule a vote in the house of representatives yeah. for the traditional infrastructure package until the build back better plan passes the senate yeah and we were like okay that's the only way this is gonna work that's the only way this could possibly work is if nancy pelosi holds the line which by the way i predicted that she wouldn't yep and she didn't and she did not um and i the the only place that i that I did get a prediction incorrect, which I don't know if I got this incorrect or if I just didn't, I didn't specifically call this, that this would happen, mm -hmm. would be that the Progressive Caucus would completely buck under pressure and end up voting for the traditional infrastructure bill and passing that mm -hmm. and thus get rid of all of their leverage. Now, I would just like to say, again, real quick, credit to the ones that did hold the line on it. Yeah. Now... I'll, I'm going to go ahead and list them. It's easy to list them because there's very few of them. All right. Credit to Jamal Bowman, Corey Bush, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar. It was easy for me to... I, 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 I just remembered that <laughs> off the top of my head because there were so few that have any fucking political sense in their minds to realize, hey, if we do this, we are losing that leverage. And, and we then, predicted the moment that that happened, we predicted it's gone. It's dead. Yeah. Yeah. There's just no incentive. Yeah. For why the fuck to would, come to why the, the fuck would Manchin want to like, he already got his, he already got his watered down traditional infrastructure bill would, would, which would help West Virginia a little bit, but you know, more to like, you know, you know, better for him, at least, uh, it would also reprivatize a bunch. It would also privatize a bunch of public land and use uh, the selling of public assets to private companies in order to pay for the bill itself. So he mm -hmm. got his corruption out of it. There was enough. There was just enough corruption in that bill to get his vote. So he got mm -hmm. what he wanted. Why yeah. the fuck would he? Yeah. Would he do something that actually helped people? That's just like, not oh, who he is. Oh, now the Build Back Better is 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 dead do you think i could have some parts of that bill that i actually want <laughs> can we bring those up individually yeah so he's trying to have his cake and eat it too and you know what he's gonna fucking get to do it yeah we're gonna let well, him do well, he it. already did we it's it yeah. already passed the traditional infrastructure bill already passed and build back better is dead yeah. i mean democrats fucked up yeah. joe biden fucked up uh most of the Congressional Progressive Caucus fucked up, and now we got nothing. And one final prediction, and this is the prediction that I hate the most, but I'm, I, I, I'm, we're going to be right about this. We are going to get destroyed in the midterms because of this. Yep. Because to put things in a, in, in a way that even Democratic strategists can understand, makey people life better, makey people want to vote for you. 
Don't mm. make ye people life better. People not vote for you. <laughs> it's so fucking simple. And yet the <laughs> conventional wisdom is, well, people don't want too liberal. If we give them too liberal, they're not going to like it. But that's such a simplistic way of approaching it. Yeah, It's not about whether a policy is liberal. It's not about whether or not the public perceives the policy as liberal. It's about whether or not it is popular and will impact their lives in a positive way. Every single provision of Build Back Better had majority support. In most cases, even a majority of Republicans supported them. Yeah. All right? It's not about they're not being liberal enough. It's about the fact that they're not actually doing anything to materially improve people's lives. So where do we go from here? <laughs> well, we're, well we, we lose the midterms. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, the question becomes really, really important. What can we do without Congress? <laughs> yeah. Well, so even even in even in the like, I think there's almost even no before chance, the midterms. Well, even yeah. before the midterms. I mean, I think that there is almost no chance that the Democrats will survive the midterms. I think there's almost like there is there's a five percent chance. I'll give them a five percent chance of surviving the midterms. All right. But you want to increase that? Well. Start materially improving people's lives. Yeah. And there are a few things that you can do that, that, that Joe Biden Specifically you, do. Joe Biden. Yeah. <laughs> you are so unpopular right now. You owe us a duty to become more popular by helping people. Yeah, exactly. And I know that he listens to the show all the time. He's a big fan. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Joe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so there are things that Joe Biden can do. One of the biggest ones that he could do is he could sign an executive order to eliminate student loan debt. Now, yep. there's some important things to bring up about this specific conversation because there is some debate. All right. And, you know, because we, we, we do want to be intellectually honest and acknowledge the fact that there is some debate as to whether or not he has the authority of, uh, has the authority to actually do that through executive order. So his current stance has been that he supports it. He, he wants to eliminate a certain amount of student loan debt, but he does not believe that he has the authority to do it and that he wants Congress to do it. Now, the chances of Congress doing that are lower than the Democrats' chances of surviving the midterms, which again, I already said was 5%. What do you call it when someone says that, you know, they want to do something, but they are going to wait for a body or an authority that can actually do it in order for it to get done? It seems a lot like they don't want to actually do it. Yeah. At that point. I think you, you call know, that lying. If you're just, <laughs> yeah, if you're just crossing your fingers <laughs> yeah so so basically the higher education act which was originally signed in 1965 uh gives the secretary of education the authority to quote enforce pay compromise waive or release government held uh federal student loans 
Seems pretty clear. That sounds like it's all of the things. Yeah. <laughs> so so the disagreement. So so I've been trying to look into this um, to figure out what the disagreement is because that seems pretty clear. So yeah, based on what I've read, the disagreement seems to be based on the fact that they've never done it uh, through a blanket executive order before. So this Mm -hmm. has often been used in specific circumstances, like say uh, a person like, like to, to, um, to forgive student loans for people that have disabilities that make it so Mm -hmm. that they can't pay back their student loans or to, to, to forgive student loans for students that might've been defrauded. Um, this has been used on several occasions in narrow ways, but it's never been used broadly. And that seems to me to be the main reason why people aren't sure if he can do it. Because no president has ever actually done it this way. But, I mean, the wording is pretty clear. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and you know what? Like, if you're not sure if you can do it, like, try. Yeah. Get like, it in the courts. If it if the courts strike it down, then blame the courts. Then yeah, then you know. You yeah. tried. You did what you, you could. Yeah. Blame the courts. Yeah. Blame the fact that, you know, Trump stacked the courts. Like yeah. just but do something. And that could even and right there, that could even be another campaign rallying cry. Exactly. You could say, I signed this executive order to eliminate yeah. your student loans, but the right wing courts that are stacked as fuck they prevented me from doing it. So vote for Democrats so that we can get less ideological extreme right wingers on the courts so that we can actually so that we can actually do this shit. So we can actually materially improve your lives. So yeah. the thing is people like people respond to their lives being materially improved, but they also respond to you trying. Yeah. To, to you doing everything that you possibly can in order to make it happen. People respond to that. And if somebody is preventing you from doing it, that is what you campaign against in the midterms. All right? At this point, people are just assuming that you don't want to do it. I mean, again, that's, what, that's the point that Michael just made. People are assuming that you just don't want to forgive student loans. Yeah. Prove us wrong. Mm-hmm. All right. Try to do it. If it goes to court, fight like hell to make sure that it goes through. If it gets struck struck down, then make that a rallying cry in the in in the midterms. Um, there's also some actions that Joe Biden could take on climate change, and this right here, this is not just about popularity. This is about making sure that you actually leave a lasting legacy, actually do something worthwhile. Because the biggest thing standing in the way of progress right now in the United States government is some douchebag in West Virginia who is an investor in fossil fuel companies. All right? So circumvent his ass. Mm -hmm. So things that that, that Joe Biden could do um, and this 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 is argued by the uh, biologicaldiversity.org, the Center for Biological Diversity. Um, number one, stop approvals of all new fossil fuel infrastructure projects. All right. Number two, 
Ban federal fossil fuel leasing and drilling. Number three, halt fossil fuel exports. Number four, mobilize domestic industry to manufacture and install renewable energy technologies with good paying union jobs. Which by the way, I'd just like to point out, one of the things that Joe Biden said on the campaign trail, and this was actually one of the one of the highlights I thought of one of the debates, uh, I think it was the second debate that he had with Donald Trump, where he said a lot of people see a disaster when it comes to climate change. I see opportunity because there is so much potential in the renewable energy industry for mm-hmm. good paying union jobs. Yep. Okay. Fucking do it, bro. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Number five, build resilient, distributed renewable energy systems in frontline communities most affected by the dirty and unjust energy complex. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at you, Flint, Michigan. (laughs) Yeah. So those are all things that he could do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he could expand immigration with the refugee cap. Which throughout his first year of presidency was still at the historically low fifteen thousand people, whereas under the Obama administration it was one hundred ten thousand. Now he did say that he's going to expand it in twenty twenty two to one twenty five, which is like good, uh, a year late, but at least something. But he better fucking do it. <laughs> yeah, and you know something that he could do. That would make him super popular. Hmm. Um, and this is this is according to the Guardian. All right, um, he could lower prescription drug prices by seizing patent licenses. All right, he hmm. could actually do this under a law. Uh, it's that's known as uh, Section uh, fourteen ninety eight. It's been on the books since um, since nineteen ten. Now, usually it's used for military purposes, like, mm. you know, um, getting lead-free bullets and, and night vision goggles. It has sometimes been used in a pharmaceutical context, and he could use that as precedent. All right? Mm. So if he were to do that, it would increase po- competition among pharmaceutical, uh, among pharmaceutical pre- uh, companies. It would allow there to be less of this, like almost monopolization of patents mm-hmm. among big pharma and allow for prices to actually be reasonable. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest reasons why we've advocated for Medicare for all is that in a Medicare for all system, you have more power to negotiate with these pharmaceutical companies. If you open up patents, then that allows for competition to drive prices down in a way, in a, in a almost completely free market way, mm-hmm. which is supposed to be the big benefit of capitalism in the first place. Yeah. So you want to do that? That's going to make you really fucking popular. He could also fix this glitch in the, in the ACA called the family glitch, uh, which started under the Obama administration. And basically it prevents families of people who have employee offered health care plans from qualifying for health insurance subsidies under Obamacare, um, even if the employee-offered plan would be much more expensive for the family members if they go with that option, right? So, like, you've got an option, but it sucks, 
you'd prefer to go with subsidized care under Obamacare, but you can't. So he could actually go in and just fix that problem single-handedly improving the ACA. Yeah. Yeah. Like, these are all things that would pretty much immediately touch people's lives yeah. and help a lot of people out. Also, through executive action, he could potentially take marijuana off the Schedule One substances list. Yeah, no kidding. That would make you pretty popular, yeah. especially yeah. especially among young people, mm-hmm. especially among uh, communities of color. Yep. So, yeah, like, I mean, it's right up there right now with heroin. Yeah, Schedule One is the same classification as heroin. It's it is a higher classification than cocaine and methamphetamine. Like, it's a no fucking brainer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, the sad thing is, he's probably not going to do any of this stuff. But, he could. And, and i just like to point out, like, uh, I often have conversations with people where who listen to the podcast who get annoyed with the fact that we spend a lot of time railing against Joe Biden. And I feel like sometimes there's the perception that I'm just bitter that he beat Bernie. And yes, I am bitter that he beat Bernie. <laughs> and that is 80% accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. I am almost certain that Bernie would have done basically everything that we've talked about on this list. Yeah. Or at least tried to do everything that we've talked about on this list. He would have done anything he possibly could have. Yeah. All right. Because that's just who he is. That he he was always unapologetic when he was fighting for these policies. Yeah. And he also was not bought and paid for by super PACs. So yes, there is an important difference between the hypothetical Bernie presidency and the Joe Biden presidency. Now, what we have is the Joe Biden presidency. Yep. And I'm tr- and and this segment is not to say, you know, fuck Joe Biden. No. It's to say Joe Biden step up. Yeah, exactly. It's to say like we weren't we're not like we would be way less bitter about Joe Biden beating Bernie if Joe Biden did all the things Bernie did. Yeah. We like we're saying from the very beginning, okay, prove us wrong. Like or even we don't like Joe Biden or we didn't, you know, we're super enthusiastic about Joe Biden, but we were really, really hoping that he would turn us into Biden lovers. Yeah. Or even not even do all the things Bernie said he wanted said that Bernie said that Bernie wanted to do. Do everything that Joe Biden yeah. said Joe Biden wanted to do. <laughs> And now for a more lighthearted segment, we've got a good actually. So Nathan, why do we do good actually? Because we're about to talk about something super fucking depressing in our next segment. Because mm. the world sucks. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but sometimes That's if true. you look around you and you look really hard and then you give up because you don't see anything good. But then two days later, after you know a lot of carbs and a lot of alcohol... And a lot of drugs, you start looking again. <laughs> You'll see that good actually is all around us. Mm. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, that's not just all the peyote. <laughs>
So, Nathan, what is our good actually this week? Well, our good actually this week is another victory for American unions. So, some of you have probably Man, heard in the... Unions, uh, they're getting too much power. <laughs> <laughs> so, a lot of you have probably heard about the strike among Kellogg's workers. Um, they won. Mm. So, uh, the the the... The, the Kellogg's company ended up negotiating a new contract for them that included across-the-board increases to wages. Mm. Um, it ended a two-tiered system in which people who had, uh, who had started in the company um, like uh, before like 2015 were paid more than, uh, than, than people that, uh, that started working afterwards. Um, it also, uh, increased overall benefits and I mean, that's just, un- that's just uncontroversially a good thing. Yeah. I mean, people who are factory workers are getting paid more and unions once again have demonstrated that they're, they're a positive force in the United States yeah. And that they can still have power. And yeah. as of right now, this affects uh, 1,400 workers. Mm-hmm. But hopefully, as more people start remembering, oh, yeah, unions, they can do good stuff. People getting paid more and having better conditions is a good thing. Hopefully, more people will start to, more, more factory workers, more more workers in general for all these corporations will will start following suit, get better conditions for themselves, for their families, better pay, and ultimately better lives. So now what am I going to do with my union-busting action figure that I got in my cornflakes <laughs> box with the special edition exploding proletariat? proletariat? <laughs> <laughs> And that's good, actually. Okay, for our next segment, we're going to take you to a pretty heavy place. Um, In a new installment of Sorry We Fucked Up Your Country, um, we're going to be talking about Afghanistan again. Yeah. Um, I feel like we've talked about Afghanistan more times than we've talked about Medicare for All on this podcast at this point. In the last year, for sure. In the last year, for sure. Yeah. So remember how in our last episode we talked about Yemen and uh, we called it the worst humanitarian crisis in the world? Mm-hmm. Enter Afghanistan. Hold my beer, says Afghanistan. Mm. Afghanistan yeah. has now surpassed Yemen as the single biggest humanitarian crisis in the world right now Hmm. so but u.s not to be forgotten is still one of the main players driving it yeah in fact i there's a very easy thing that the united states could do that would significantly overt the current humanitarian crisis but since this is a sorry we fucked up your country we'd like to do a little bit of a previously on Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just to, just to catch you up. All right. So we have been 
fucking Afghanistan since the 80s. I mean, significantly just fucking them. So, first off, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan during the Cold War. And at the time, the Mujahideen, which were a group of Islamic extremists, were fighting them. And so we thought, you know what would be a really good idea? Let's sell a bunch of weapons to a bunch of Islamic extremists who, uh, you know, who in places they have power institute requirements for how long a dude's beard has to be. And then hope nothing goes wrong. Literally, any enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. Is that approach. Even religious crazies. Mm-hmm. So, big shocker. Uh, yep. The Mujahideen, a lot of, a lot of the, the main figures from the Mujahideen eventually broke off and formed the Taliban. Others actually formed Al-Qaeda. In fact, um, uh, Osama bin Laden actually fought alongside the Mujahideen against the Soviet Union. And at the time, we thought he was a freedom fighter. And then, you know, he had planes crash into our towers. Um, but anyway, sorry, that's a, that's a separate, <laughs> at that's which a point, separate, we fucked up. Yeah, at, at which point, yeah, uh, we went to war with the wrong country. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, but, but that's, that's, that's Al-Qaeda. Let's talk about the Taliban, all right? So the Taliban, which we armed and empowered, ended up taking over the government of Afghanistan and installing a theocracy. And then under George W. Bush, we invaded Afghanistan. We overthrew the Taliban government, but of course the Taliban still controlled many territories within Afghanistan. And we engaged in a two decade long war against them in which we propped up a puppet government, which was riddled with corruption we allied ourselves with warlords, with child sex slaves that were child rapists. And then on, on several occasions, when United States soldiers would discover this and beat the shit out of these pedophile warlords, those soldiers would then get dishonorably discharged because those are our allies. You know, the ones with child sex slaves. Um, we would drone strike them, killing civilians. And in some cases, uh, actually in most cases, majority of the, a majority of the people that were killed in drone strikes were non-combatants were not Mm -hmm. the targets. And then of course, when, when people blew the whistle on that, we threw them in jail too. Um, and this, this government was so poorly run and so corrupt that in recent years, the Taliban was gaining momentum because people were turning to that as the more stable force in the region. Yeah. Like someone robs your house. There were people in Afghanistan that were more likely, and this is according to the Afghanistan papers that came out from the, uh, the, uh, the Washington post people in some cases were more likely to go to the Taliban than the local police because the local police were that fucking corrupt. Basically, the Afghanistan government was a weekend at Bernie's, like, (laughs) propped up by the United States. And big shocker, 
the second that the United States pulled out, it collapsed. Now, the biggest reason why that happened is because our priority was never nation building. It was never democracy building. It was the military industrial complex. It was the fact that it was a resource rich area and we wanted access to those resources. That's the biggest thing. All right. You want to say it was about killing Osama bin Laden? He died like a decade before the war officially ended. Mm -hmm. So on almost every conceivable level, we have fucked up Afghanistan. Yeah. And understandably, you know, in 2002, the Tal Taliban was designated a specially designated global terrorist group, yeah. right? Which prevents people from, yeah, which they are totally, prevents people from funding them, giving them aid, things like that. It's a, it's a, it's a designation that um, brings criminal liability to people that provide them with aid and funds. Yeah. And now they're the governing force in Afghanistan. Which puts us in a bit of a pickle. Yeah. So as soon as the Taliban seized control of Cabal, uh, Joe Biden seized more than $9 billion of Afghanistan government assets. Now, yep. this alongside the fact that because the Taliban is classified as a terrorist group, which again... They are, all right? This segment, to be clear, is not defending the Taliban. Fuck no. the Taliban. They're a yep. bunch of terrorists. They're a bunch of extremists. They're a bunch of theocrats. They're yep. not good people. But the people of Afghanistan should not have to suffer because of that. Yeah. And that is exactly what's happening. Because the people that would normally be in charge of receiving humanitarian aid from the United Nations are, you know, for a while until a very recent resolution adopted by the United Nations um, were barred from even being communicated to by the United Nations because they were on that list of, you know, they were basically blacklisted. Yeah. So all aid from the U.S., from the IMF, emergency support was all cut off because it was all assumed that that would be going to the Taliban. Yeah. And as a result, because here's the thing, they cannot be self-sufficient right now. And a yeah, huge, yeah. a huge reason for that is because they just had a huge governmental transition. Another reason, well, of course, a coup. A coup. <laughs> Let's, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, Fair. yeah, it wasn't yeah. like a nice, <laughs> yeah, they don't um, have a stable economy. They just had a civil war. Like yeah. <laughs> there's, you know, there's a reason why they can't be self-sufficient right now. And also, they've, and, I mean... And there's, they've been going through a drought. They've been going through a drought, and it's winter. Yeah. And as a result of that, one million children's lives are immediately threatened by famine. Yeah. 22.8 million people, more than half of the country's population, face life-threatening food insecurity. Yep. And yeah. the new United Nations estimates only 5% of, of Afghanistan's 40 million people have sufficient food. Yeah. So the United Nations program, 
or the, the United Nations Development Program projects that by the middle of this year, Afghanistan could face universal poverty mm-hmm. with 97% of Afghanistan, of Afghan uh, citizens living below the World Bank designated poverty line, which is a dollar ninety a day. So if we are going, if, if Afghanistan continues on its current route, 97% of Afghans will be living on less than a dollar ninety a day. Mm-hmm. And which United means dying Sta- on a less than which means dying. a dollar ninety a day. Like this is this is worse than Yemen right now. What they're going mm-hmm. through is worse than Yemen. And the thing that would have the biggest impact would be if we unfroze that nine billion dollars that we froze when the Taliban seized control. If like, but the problem is the Biden administration is refusing to do that. They're saying, all right, well, we're just going to do some, uh, some incremental stuff. So, so far what they've done is in October, the U S provided, um, an additional, um, $144 million in aid, $144 million in aid. $9 $9 billion is frozen. Yeah. And we gave them $144 million. Yeah. That is nothing. And, yeah. And, and the Treasury Department has issued some licenses uh, to eat, to allow money uh, to flow from for like emergency food and medicine and shelter. Um, and, and we've loosened up some ability for the international community to get to provide aid, but it's not enough. And it's sticky, right? Like, yeah, we don't want to like the U S doesn't want to fund terror. Yeah. Right. The U S wants to retain or attempt to create leverage over the Taliban. Uh, to try to hold them accountable for at least some of the promises that they've made to enter the 21st century on some of their human on their some of their social uh, yeah. issues, like you know allowing women to like have jobs and things like that, basic liberal policies. But the like, but when 97 percent of the population faces poverty, 95 percent right now don't have enough food that is shooting the hostage yeah it's shooting your own hostage yeah yeah (laughs) i mean and we yeah and we don't like and and this hasn't worked before yeah as like a way to pressure the populace to overthrow the government if people are starving like Kind of They're hard more to likely to, yeah, kind of hard to go hold a gun. And also, like, who at this point is causing the starvation? We are. The people that are withholding the money. Yeah. I mean, we saw this. We actually made a very similar argument in Cuba um, with the embargo, where 
the Cuban government was using the fact that the United States had an embargo on Cuba as a reason to detract attention away from their own corrupt failings and yeah. towards hating the United States. Yep. And so there is a there's a money charger in um in Afghanistan in in Kabul. Uh Abdul uh Jalal. And he told the New Yorker, quote, they talk about human rights. They are violating human rights laws themselves. Why do they not unfreeze the Afghan money, which is Afghans people's by right? Yeah. Basically, basically arguing that this is a public relations victory for the Taliban. Yeah. You know what's an easy argument to make that, w- that is going to work? If it wasn't for the U.S., things would be working. Yeah. It worked in Cuba. It's an easy argument to make, and it's one that's hard to disprove, right? The argument is going to be the Taliban would be a good government if not for these sanctions. Yeah. And people will believe it. Yeah. Like, if if the United States' position is that the you know that that people are that people within an authoritarian theocracy like Afghanistan are are not going it's that it's not going to be sustainable then allow it to collapse by itself mm-hmm. all right don't punish the people because of it don't punish the people of Afghanistan further than you already have all right. If you are if you're going to be the international good guy, you cannot freeze nine billion dollars that are rightfully the people of Afghanistan's just to like just to strike at the people that are in charge. You are killing people. You are killing civilians. The civilians of a a, a country for political purposes. Yeah. I believe we have a word for that. It's called terrorism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's one thing I want to push back that, that Michael said. He said, we don't want to support terrorism. We don't want to support terrorism that we agree is terrorism. Mm. But we're totally okay with committing terrorism because by definition, when we do it, we're the good guys. All right, and now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Dershowitz Bag. Yeah. So, Nathan, what on earth is a Dershowitz Bag? Well, a Dershowitz Bag, also known as a D-Bag Award, is an award that we give out to somebody who makes an argument that is so ridiculously stupid and self-defeating that we just have to acknowledge it and praise it, give it its just praise. And, of Mm -hmm. course... It's named after Alan Dershowitz for that fateful argument that he made during the Trump impeachment proceedings. The first Trump impeachment proceedings. (laughs) Right, the first Trump impeachment proceedings, where he said that it's okay for for the president to cheat to win an election because a president is always going to think that it's within the nation's best interests for them to win. (laughs) <laughs> awesome. It's as it's needlessly confusing and idiotic 
as it sounds. <laughs> so, who is our D-bag today? Well, I, I could not be more happy to present this prestigious award to Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. Mm. Oh, man. I'm kind of surprised he hasn't been a D-bag before. His arguments... He 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 is one of those. He's of the political and philosophical bent of people that um, they make like circular arguments that are so dumb that they convince people that you know yeah. they're just not smart enough to understand yeah. them. Yeah. If you really understood this argument, you know, it wouldn't be patently self-defeating. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm kind of surprised he hasn't been a D-bag before. Yeah. Well, also, he is he is an interesting case because on rare occasions, he'll say something that's not completely stupid. Mm-hmm. Like just, just last week, we gave him credit for being anti-genocide. Or not last week, but last episode, we gave him credit for being anti-genocide. Now, yeah. low fucking bar, yep. but it was a bar that... 67 senators were not able to clear. We're grading on a curve here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The easiest curve ever created. (laughs) But anyways, anyways. So uh, Senator Rand Paul was making an argument about Democrats stealing elections. Mm. And specifically, he was describing the strategy that Democrats are doing in order to steal an election. So he was... He, he, quoted a, he quoted an article from the American Conservative. And like this argument was originally in the, the American Conservative, but we're giving this to Rand Paul because he's mm-hmm. a fucking senator and he should know and better. And he tweeted it out. And he tweeted it out, so he obviously yeah. believes it. Yeah. Um, he said, quote, How to steal an election. Seeding an area heavy with potential Democratic voters with as many absentee ballots as possible, targeting and convincing potential voters to complete them in a legally valid way, and then harvesting and counting the results. (laughs) How to steal an election. Have a fucking election. (laughs) And have the election. Count the votes. Get people (laughs) to vote. Legally. Legally. He even says, he even says, complete them in a legally valid way. That's not stealing an election. That's having an election election. and winning an election. (laughs) You dingbat. Yeah. (laughs) D-bag. That's just amazing. Like, it's like, it's not even subtle. Like, legally valid way. Like, stealing is not the term. Like, literally, if if I didn't know that this was from the American conservative, I would have thought he was quoting The Onion. Yes. Because yeah. that, How that sounds like election. something The Onion would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Democrats ruthlessly steal an election by conducting and counting all the votes. <laughs> yeah. So, so his argument is that it is bad to convince people to vote to make it easier for them to vote. Yep. And then to count those votes. Yep. But notice, uh, notice like him, him like trying to like the article, like peppering in terms that are supposed to be like bad harvesting, like ballot harvesting is a practice of like gathering together and then like getting rid of ballots. Right. But they're just collecting them. Yeah. And counting them. I mean, 
It makes sense because he's a Republican. Yeah. And if things were truly Democratic, they'd never win a fucking election ever. So to him, it feels like stealing an election. Hmm. Yeah. Now, of course, it would never occur to him to just have policies that make sense and actually help people. You got to make sure that it's harder for people to vote and you got to restrict people's rights and have a better I, march to ha, have a have a stronger march to fascism. And one of the things that I thought was kind of funny, because like I'm, I'm looking at this, I'm looking at his Twitter feed right now, and I'm also looking at his own description on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, um, so 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 in his his description, it says U.S. Senator for Kentucky. I fight for the Constitution, individual liberty, and the freedoms that make this country great. Well, apparently, one of those freedoms ain't democracy mm. for him. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see his next tweet now. How to steal an election? Pass Medicare for all. Pass <laughs> police reform. Child tax credit. <laughs> yeah. The whole Build Back Better plan. How to steal an election. Yeah. It's so popular, it's going to make people yep. vote for them. And that's not fair. Thievery. Our policies are so unpopular. <laughs> so congratulations to Kentucky Senator Rand Paul for being this week's D-bag. And so for our last segment tonight, we're going to be talking from a little bit more of a strategic and a little bit more of a philosophical angle about gerrymandering. So on this show, we're pretty vocally anti-gerrymandering. Yep. And, and to remind you what gerrymandering is, it is the practice of uh, strategically drawing voting districts, um, you know, typically using like mathematical models to carve up um, uh, communities that favor one party or another. So if you're, if you're a Republican and you're gerrymandering, you're going to carve up a Democratic district such that it is divided to have minority, uh, con- like minority positions in each of you know, the other districts in the state. And thus you can effectively eliminate uh, Democratic seats from the state. Right, it is a clearly anti-democratic like practice because you're taking, you know, you're taking, say, a state where, you know, it's close to fifty-fifty, and you're making it one hundred percent Republican represented, represented by just how you draw the map. Um, It's probably one of the like most significant uh, problems in our democracy today. It is like the thing that is corrupting the representativeness of our democratic republic. Um, and so naturally, we should be against it, right? Yeah. And also naturally, Republicans fucking love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the other reason <laughs> why we should be against it. <laughs> so, so then the question is, should we do it? And the argument for doing it goes a little bit like this. Um, Republicans gerrymander the shit out of everything, right? They do not play fair, right? Um, they do a crazy amount of gerrymandering, which means that they are favored in many states. Not only that, because of our electoral system, which naturally uh, biases um, 
uh, representation towards rural areas as opposed to population, um, Republicans who are concentrated in rural er voters have a built-in bias in addition to their gerrymandering and and which which you know they use to skew the uh, skew power towards them. And so, if elected Democrats, uh, uh, so the argument is that the only way the Democrats can get enough power to fix gerrymandering, right, to, to institute a national law to prevent gerrymandering, is to gerrymander, right? That is the argument. We will be, to it is totally self-defeating, we'll be falling on the sword of empty principles if we commit to, you know, uh, nonpartisan districting in every state. Because if you think about it, think about it like this. One side believes in fairness, so they district, you know, they have their districting commissions divided 50-50 or whatever, nonpartisan or representative, um, and then they divide up the state such that it represents the democracy, right? Say the state's 50-50, you divide it up evenly. But the other side embraces cheating, and so they get each state close to 100-0. And so as a result, the outcome of all the states is 75-25, Right. That's like the basic idea. And so basically, for every Republican gerrymandered state, we need an equivalent Democratic gerrymandered state to keep the scales balanced, which, after all, is the goal of a Democratic Republic. Right. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> all right. So uh, so Michael has laid out the steel man. Um, here's why it's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so first off, there are a lot of assumptions that this premise, uh, that, that this premise needs to be true in order for the logic to be sound. The first premise is that more Democrats is inherently good like more democrats is always are, is always going to be a good thing mm -hmm. all right and that the nation's problems specifically the institutional problems built into our electoral system would just be better if we just had more democrats yeah but here's the thing one of the biggest institutional problems with the country in the first place is the fact that we have a two-party system. Mm -hmm. And that two-party system allows us to have a system in which both parties can be complete dog shit. Yeah. But, and, and, and most of the people that support and vote for the parties can know that they're complete dog shit, but the threat of the other party is such an incentive that they don't even need to try to get better. So like Joe Biden was chosen as our nominee, despite the fact that the, the democratic base, the, the democratic primary voters were significantly to the left of him. Mm -hmm. They were much more with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on policy than they were with Joe Biden or, or Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar. That's just a fact. You can look at the polls. That's just a fact. But 
The argument that kept being drilled into the electorate was that Biden was the only way that you defeat Trump. So the desire to have a better candidate was foregone in favor of the threat of Donald Trump. On the other side of it, Republicans are also terrified of Democrats Mm -hmm. and they will vote for whatever Republican is, is put up against the Democrat. It doesn't matter how terrible Republicans are. It doesn't matter how corrupt Republicans are. Republicans are going to vote for them because they're afraid of Democrats. So the two party system is something that needs to be abolished and ingraining gerrymandering into the system is basically like putting up an oil pipeline when you're trying to get rid of fossil fuels. Yes, oil pipelines are technically not as bad for the environment as using a a truck or a train, but it's a permanent installation that ingrains the production of fossil fuel as a more integral part of your economy. Similarly, Democrats gerrymandering ingrains the two-party system more firmly in our political process. Number two, in order for the assumption that it would be good for Democrats to start gerrymandering and that, you know, to, to, it would be good for them to start gerrymandering so that they can get power and then abolish gerrymandering altogether, that also relies on the assumption that when Democrats get power, that's exactly what they're going to do. But that is also not guaranteed, case in point. States in which Democrats are firmly in in control are gerrymandered, Not not just on a federal level, but on a state level. Look at Maryland. Look at, look at uh, Massachusetts. Look at New Jersey. Heavily gerrymandered in favor of Democrats on a state level. Now, if the assumption is Democrats are in charge of a state, therefore, they believe. Therefore, they abolish gerrymandering within that state in order to make a more make it a more democratic government. I don't think that it is. It is, a, it is too much of a leap to assume that if Democrats were given that power and the mandate from their own voters to do that, if they were to, uh, you know, if they were to take control on a larger level, I do not think that it is a large jump to assume that they would not then ger- continue to gerrymander for themselves if they yeah. can. Yeah, regardless of the motivation the the actual function of a political party is to remain in power. Yeah. Right? Like principles, the actuation of principles is not the function of a political party. It is, it is to remain in power. Yeah. In Virginia, Republicans used to be firmly in control. And when Republicans were firmly in control, Democrats were arguing for a nonpartisan commission to redraw uh, district lines. And then the Democrats took control of the Virginia General Assembly. And there was a ballot initiative to do just that, 
Yep. And you know what happened? It failed. No, it, no, it succeeded. Oh, yeah, the ballot initiative. The yeah. ballot initiative succeeded, but Democrats in the House of Delegates and the Senate were telling their constituency to vote against it. Yep. They were telling their constituency to vote against it, something yeah. that they supported when Republicans were in charge. Yeah. It also, again, it, it, it gives Democrats a license to be dog shit. Yeah. Yeah. Because and to be undemocratic. Well, to, to be undemocratic, but like the reason why a lot of dog shit politicians are able to stay in power yeah. is because they're in gerrymandered districts. Yep. If you don't give Democrats incentives to be better politicians, they're mm. going to continue to do nothing yep. and continue to get voted for because there will be more ideologically left people. Mm -hmm. in their district that will always vote for them because they don't want a Republican in charge. Yeah. The point of our system, the design is to be a, a measured counterbalance to, you know, the whims of the democratic populace, which is why it's not a pure democracy, but retain its responsiveness to changes in public opinion and perception. Yeah. Right. And the more that we, way uh the more that we that we gerrymander the more that we entrench um political supremacy in the very structure of uh, our districts the less responsive we make this system which is already a, weighted as a counterbalance to public opinion right like we have we have asynchronous elections for uh for senators and the house right we've got um, you know, uh, a three, uh, a tripartite system of government, right? Like the whole idea is to counterbalance public opinion. So we're not fickle to, you know, whatever the public wishes, which is why it's a democratic Republic. But the more that we, the less responsive we make that, the more we're corrupting the system towards just political fiat, right? Like, Whoever gets to draw the boundaries gets to make the laws, regardless of what the people want. If you can erase, right, literally erase 45% of the population in a state because you've gerrymandered it such that that 45% yields 100% representation by the 55%, you have fucked up the system. Yeah. 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 And like, and there are lots of practical arguments, right? Like, um, one argument is that like, we don't redraw districts that often, right? Yeah. Every 10 years, like do like having Democrats in power in a census year is very impactful. This could make a difference for years to come, right? The other, th the other th argument is the Supreme, Supreme Court has said gerrymandering, totally chill, totally cool, go with it. So if yeah. they think it's within the bounds, shouldn't it be within the bounds? Well, the answer there is the Supreme Court doesn't make the rules. Yeah. Congress makes the rules. Supreme Court, you know, interprets them and sees if it's unconstitutional or not. The Supreme Court should not be our referee, right? Yeah. The Supreme Court is not the referee. The Supreme Court is the sidelines. Yeah. Right? And so, like, there are lots of these, like, practical arguments 
But fundamentally, more gerrymandering further corrupts our system. And assuming that Democrats, that gerrymandered elected Democrats are the solution to gerrymandered elected Republicans just means that we're going to have more gerrymandering and less representation. Yeah. The other thing that it relies on, the other huge assumption that it relies on is that we can't pass voter reform to fix gerrymandering without gerrymandering. Can't get enough Democrats to pass it without it. Which, maybe that's true. There is a bill that has passed the House that would require nonpartisan redistricting commissions, which would trigger redistricting, right? Like, if it doesn't, then it wouldn't matter if it's a census year if we pass this bill. The other thing is, the thing that is blocking that bill from going through the Senate is the filibuster, right? We could, we could pass that bill. Like, Manchin is in favor of this voting reform bill. We could pass it if not for the filibuster. So, like, the path is not that we have to gerrymander to pass voting reform. It's actually that we have to reform the filibuster to pass voting reform. Yeah. And also, I mean, you put more Democrats in Congress who are there because of gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. What incentives do they have yeah. to, 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 to vote against gerrymandering? Yeah. I mean, we literally <laughs> lose seats in solidly blue states if we do that. If yeah. like we lose seats in states that are heavily gerrymandered. Yeah. Now we gain we gain seats in other states that are yep. also heavily gerrymandered and Republicans yep. do more gerrymandering than Democrats. Yeah. Yeah, it that's the other really critical part of this. Democrats actually gain more from solving gerrymandering than they gain from gerrymandering as a whole. But on a state by state basis if you're like one of the Democrats in New York or Maryland, you lose. Or you could lose. You could lose, like, your seat. But even if they didn't, on principle, yeah. like, I know that the whole, you know, dying on the sword of your own principles or whatever is often used as an argument. We have to have some principles, all right? We mm -hmm. have to have principles. We have to have places that we won't go. If we want to have a democratic government, you can't destroy the democracy in order to save it. That's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to have principles. All right. And now we'll end our show as we usually do on our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is that yesterday, one of my best friends got engaged. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and you, you, you know, you know him, uh, my friend, Josh. No way. Yeah. That's awesome. That's he so got cool. engaged. Um, and he regularly, he, he regularly listens to the show. So <laughs> just like to give a great shout out to my buddy, Josh. Congratulations, um, man. Congratulations. You know, I, I, this, this is a guy I've been friends with since I was in third grade. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always dreamed of the day that someone would come around and make him a princess. <laughs> and I'm so glad that finally happened. So wow. congratulations, Josh. I'm, I'm so happy for you. You know, 
I, I wish you the best and, uh, you know, I love you. Man, best man audition right here. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Mike's? What's your, uh, what's your highlight? My highlight, I, I had a really nice like Christmas and holiday season. I got to like see a lot of family, which was awesome. Uh, Bree got me a bicycle for Christmas, which is like amazing, exciting. I'm staring at it right now. I can't take my eyes off it these days. Um, so I'm just like super happy with that. And like just a lot, I have a lot to look forward to in 2022. Um, and so I'm actually like really excited for this year to kick off. So. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.